song. So many of those songs are going to coordinate with the message, very obviously. Uh, well, we like to sing here at Shepherd's Gate, don't we? We just finished singing songs of praise to God. And I think it's, that's the universal response of humanity to the mercy and goodness of God. Now, worldwide, no matter what language, no matter what culture, we sing praise to God. And our section of scripture this morning is a song. It's a song written by Isaiah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's a song that will be sung by the Jewish people during the Messianic Kingdom. And Debbie, can I add the slide? There we go. Song of Salvation, Isaiah 26, verses 1 through 21. And we'll learn in this chapter that singing for joy will be our Messianic Kingdom experience as well. So the Song of Salvation, Isaiah 26, verses 1 through 21. The song starts with a tale of two cities, but with apologies to Charles Dickens. It's not about London and Paris during the French Revolution. It's about Jerusalem and Babylon during the Messianic Kingdom. So the first city discussed is Millennial Jerusalem. We begin with a new song in the land of Judah. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. So what day? What day is he talking about? Well, here's a chart of the time frames that Isaiah deals with. He deals with his distant past. He deals with his, pro- with his present time. He goes to the near future, the Assyrian invasion. He goes to the first coming of Jesus, the tribulation period, the second coming. And we start this morning in the kingdom. The kingdom is the time frame in view here. So Isaiah is referring back to chapter 25, which was a song of praise for God's favor that we studied last week. So chapter 26 is a second song, a song of trust in God's salvation. Now the object of the song is the strong city, also in verse 1. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. So our city has strong defenses. Now the NASB renders the phrase, walls and ramparts for security. That's kind of poor rendering. The New King James Version does a better job. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. It's salvation that protects the city. And the point is that God himself is the ultimate protector of the city in the visible form of the glory of God. Now, a non-biblical synonym for the expression the glory of God is the term the Shekinah glory or the Shekinah. Now, the Jewish community uses that particular term to identify the visible manifestation of God's presence, God's visible glory. Now, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He is present in the farthest reaches of deep space. He is present in the smallest subatomic particle. He is present in this room. However, when our omnipresent God chooses to to reveal himself in a specific location, that manifestation, that visible manifestation, is called the glory of God or the Shekinah or the Shekinah. Now, the glory of God appears in various different forms. A light, a fire, a cloud, and in the case of Jesus, a human body. He is a, he is a, a, a form of the Shekinah glory. Now, if our omnipresent God chose to reveal himself in this particular location right here where my hand is, we would probably see a ball of light or a fire or something cloud-like. Well, he hasn't done it. He hasn't decided to do that. 
Now, we learned from Scripture there will be five manifestations of the glory of God in the Messianic kingdom. First of all, the glory of God will be visible in the Holy of Holies of the Millennial Temple, Ezekiel 43. Secondly, it will appear over Millennial Mount Zion. We saw that in Isaiah chapter 4. Thirdly, it will be around Jerusalem as a wall of fire, Zechariah 2. It'll be with Israel. The Shekinah glory will be with Israel when we get to chapter 35 in Isaiah and chapter 60 in Isaiah. And finally, the, the Shekinah glory appeared in the person of Messiah Yeshua, Zechariah 2.5. Now here's an illustration depicting the Shekinah glory around Jerusalem, protecting the city as its walls and bulwarks as a wall of fire. It's done by a, an Israeli Jewish Christian artist. I kind of like that picture. Now, the inhabitants of the city are discussed in verse 2. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful. So the strong city is pictured as empty, having just been built, in this case, rebuilt. There are no inhabitants yet, and the gates are commanded to open up and let Israel in. Now, the people are the faithful remnant of Israel who have survived the tribulation. Now, two qualities are mentioned in regard to those who enter the city. First of all, they are cleansed of sin, so the nation is righteous. And secondly, the nation has kept its faith. They've been saved by grace through faith. And this is a fulfillment of Romans 11, 25 through 27. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So at the close of the tribulation period, every living Jewish man, woman, and child will place their personal faith in Yeshua, in Jesus. And consequently, the nation will experience a national regeneration and national salvation. In verse 3, we come to the means of keeping the faith. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Now, the first means of keeping the faith is steadfastness of mind. Steadfastness of mind is an inclination to dependable, steady, reliable loyalty. Secondly, God will protect the steadfast of mind with perfect peace. Now, that Hebrew word for peace, shalom, means much more than cessation of war. It includes blessings such as wholeness, health, quietness of soul, preservation, completeness. So perfect peace is a peace that really goes beyond human comprehension. Now, why will God protect the faithful remnant with this deep and constant tranquility? And the answer, because he trusts in you. The thoughts of the faithful remnant were kept secure by God because they chose to have confidence in him. So the verse describes the state of mind of the faithful remnant during the tribulation period, unwavering loyalty. And this principle of firm faith, of course, can be applied to any believer. It can be applied to you and I, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, if you have been raised up with the Messiah, keep seeking the things above. Be steadfastly loyal. Set your mind, where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, 
not on the things that are on the earth. In other words, be steadfastly loyal. Don't think about the earth. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Messiah in God. And when Messiah, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will, will be revealed with him in what? Glory. Glory. We'll share the Shekinah glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So God will bless each one of us with peace if we remain steadfastly loyal to him. And now we encounter an exhortation in verse 4. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. So the motivation to remain and continue in this loyal state of mind lies in the fact that our God is an everlasting rock. It it, uh, lies in his character. Now the word rock, the word rock does not refer to a pebble. It does not refer to a stone you can throw. It refers to a mountain. Mountains illustrate God's eternality. Now this is the slopes of Mount Hermon the highest mountain in Israel, 9,232 feet. This is Mount Hermon from the Golan Heights. It is a big rock. Now, in the Jezreel Valley, this is Mount Tabor. This is the real Mount Tabor, not Portland's Mount Tabor, okay? It is also a big rock. And, you know, we have a a rock. We have a rock here in Portland. We have a mountain that can remind us of God's eternality as well. You know, whenever you see Mount Hood in all its glory, remember, it's a biblical reminder of God's eternality. It is a reminder of our rock. You are the rock of my salvation, the mountain of my salvation. So Isaiah is using the proper name of, <clears throat> excuse me, the proper name of God here in its most emphatic form. So the emphasis is on his personal firmness, God's personal dependability, his character. It's like a rock. A similar statement is found in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect, for in all his ways are just a God of faithfulness, and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. So our God is a rock, an immovable, eternal, trustworthy mountain. So we've just had a glance at city number one in our tale of two cities. Now we sing about... City number two. And this city is Babylon in contrast to Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. We just saw that. Babylon will not. Now in verse five, Israel sings about the action of the everlasting rock against Babylon. Verse five. For he has brought low those who dwell on high, the unassailable city. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He casts it to the dust. Now, this is the third time Isaiah has referred to a specific city that will not be rebuilt again. The first instance was Isaiah 24, verses 10 through 12. The second was Isaiah 25, verses 2 and 3. And in addition, in Isaiah 13, verses 1 and 2, we know this refers to Babylon. And Babylon refers to the most important city in the Antichrist Empire. It's the political, economic, and religious capital of the world during the tribulation period, the unassailable city. However, this city is now pictured as trampled by the faithful remnant, verse 6. The foot will trample it. 
the feet of the afflicted, the steps of the helpless. So this is a picture of total victory. Now, the NASB renders the phrase, the afflicted and the helpless. The American Standard Version does a better job rendering the terms as the poor and the needy. The foot will tread it down, even the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. Now, this, this verse is a reference to the faithful remnant of Israel. The faithful remnant is consistently called the poor and the needy throughout Scripture. So the very ones Babylon sought to destroy shall be the ones who experience victory over her. She is not unassailable for God. Now we come to a principle, the principle of learning righteousness by means of judgment. This is one reason why God brings judgment on the world, so they might learn righteousness. We begin with the characteristics of the righteous in verse 7. At the beginning, the song contains a plea on behalf of the righteous. The way of the righteous is smooth. O upright God, make the path of the righteous level. So this is a plea, a request for provision. Now, as he utters the plea, Isaiah describes those whom he is pleading for. The picture is that of a person running or walking along a level and smooth road or trail. In the first part of the verse, such a person is righteous in all her ways, his ways. That is, there's nothing on the path to trip him up. His daily walk is level, consistent, God-honoring, reliable. You know, certain, certain consequences follow our actions. If we live our lives according to God's standards, we will probably have favorable consequences in our lives, unless God is testing us. But normally... Not always, but normally we experience favorable consequences if we live according to God's standards. If we, regard, if we disregard God's word, we'll inevitably experience dire consequences. Now in the second half of the verse, we're told why the path of the righteous is level. His path is directed by a righteous God. God oversees the daily walk of his child. So the proper response of the righteous is to follow after the good shepherd. Follow the path. Stay on the path. We don't need chastisement to keep us on the right path if we're responding properly to the goodness of God. Now the response of the righteous, the faithful remnant, is highlighted in verse 8. Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. So the idea here, throughout the tribulation, through the tribulation judgments, the faithful remnant has waited for the Lord. They've had a desire for his name. God's memory is burned into their souls. And so the verse implies a very intimate relationship of trust between the faithful remnant and the Lord. Now, there's always been a faithful remnant throughout Israel's history. The size of the faithful remnant has been very small during some periods of time, but the remnant has always existed. The Jewish Christians of today are members of the faithful remnant, and we comprise only 1% of the worldwide Jewish community today. So in spite of that fact, there are more Jewish Christians in the world today than there have been for 2,000 years. From the mid-1960s on until today, the size of the faithful remnant has been steadily increasing. Now, next we learn that their desire for God encompassed the whole man in verse 9. At night, my soul 
longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. For when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. So they long for God in their soul. Now your soul is your mind, your will, your emotions, the heart of humanity, the inner man, the inner woman. They also long for God in their spirit. That's the eternal component of humanity, our eternal link. Now, a universal internal principle closes the verse. When your judgments are on the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Now, there are three purposes for the tribulation. Number one, to make an end of wickedness and wicked ones, Isaiah 13 and 24. Secondly, to bring about a worldwide revival, Revelation 7. Thirdly, to break the power of the holy people, Daniel 12. Now, what's in view here is number two, bringing about a worldwide revival. In other words, the purpose for the tribulation is to teach a rebellious world God's standards of behavior. God doesn't wish that any should perish, but that all should come to salvation. So the factor that will bring a worldwide revival during the tribulation will be this aspect of judgment. Now, in contrast to the righteous, we come to the response of the unrighteous in verse 10. Though the wicked is shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness and does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. So even if favor is shown, the wicked person will still not learn righteousness. Even living in the land of uprightness, he will deal sinfully. Even under the best social and environmental conditions, he will not submit to the majesty of the Lord. He'll rebel. And this will be proven true in the millennium. After a thousand years of perfect conditions, there will be a revolt against God. Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. When the thousand years are completed, when the messianic kingdom is completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they come up on the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city, that's Jerusalem, millennial Jerusalem, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So this revolt of the unrighteous will be short-lived. So these verses in Revelation reveal the false understanding that social inequalities, social injustice, poverty and deprivation are the causes of sin. You know, if we can just bring in a utopia, if we can just bring in a one-world government, a prosperous, borderless world, whatever the program happens to be, then evil will be a thing of the past. Well, the Messianic kingdom will be a time of peace and prosperity for everyone, but sin and rebellion will still be present because sin and rebellion reside in the heart of man, not in the environment. Next, Isaiah praises God He praises God in song for the deliverance of Israel. Verse 11. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, yet they do not see it. They see your zeal for the people and are put to shame. Indeed, fire will devour your enemies. 
So God's hand is lifted up in judgment against Israel's enemies, something they fail to understand. Judgment will fall. And when it falls, they will see God's zeal for his people. Now that word zeal connotes a strong emotion. God possesses an ardor, a jealousy, a passion, an anger on behalf of Israel. Consequently, Israel's enemies will be devoured by the fire of God's judgment. Now, while there is war against the enemies of Israel, for Israel there will be peace. Verse 12, Lord, you will establish peace for us, since you have also performed for us all our works. Well, peace is not something Israel experiences today. The entire history of the modern state has been a search for peace. And that peace that is finally established will be the ideal conditions of the Messianic kingdom. And so looking back over Israel's history, the song reviews how far Israel has come. Verse 13, O Lord our God, other masters besides you have ruled us, but through you alone we confess your name. So many lords have held sway over Israel. This is a summary of the Gentile domination throughout history during the times of the Gentiles. Now the times of the Gentiles is defined by Yeshua in Luke 21, 24. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive into all the nations, the diaspora. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Destruction. Now, the times of the Gentiles spans the time frame from the Babylonian destruction and diaspora in 586 B.C. until the second coming of the Messiah. So we're living in the times of the Gentiles at this very moment. The domination of verse 13 includes the four empires of Daniel chapter 2. It began with the Babylonian Empire, then the Persian Empire, the Hellenistic Empire, and finally Roman imperialism, which exists today. But during the Messianic Kingdom, those rulers, those Gentile rulers, are gone. In the Messianic Kingdom, only God will be worshipped and only God will be the Lord of Israel. Now, the domination that characterizes her past was caused by Israel's failures. Well, that failure and the resulting domination has finally come to an end, and that's what we sing about in verse 14. The dead will not live. The departed spirits will not rise. Therefore, you have punished and destroyed them, and you have wiped out all remembrance of them. Now, the past lords are dead. They will not live to dominate Israel again. They will be resurrected, but only for the great white throne judgment. Now, in contrast, in contrast, we now sing about Israel's new growth in verse 15. You have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You've extended all the borders of the land. So when God rules over the nation, when God rules over Israel, Israel will increase in two ways. First of all, population increase. That's because Israel will suffer a population reduction of two-thirds during the Tribulation Holocaust. During the Holocaust of World War II, Hitler killed one-third of the worldwide Jewish community. During the Tribulation Holocaust, the Antichrist will destroy two-thirds of the worldwide Jewish community. World War II is going to look like a picnic in the park. And this factor is explained in Zechariah 13, verses 8 and 9. It will come about in all the land, a better translation there would be world, 
It will come about in all the world, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish. But the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. That's Romans eleven twenty-five through 27. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. So, is, so God will be glorified by Israel's population increase after the decimation of the tribulation period. And the means of doing this is going to be discussed when we get to chapter 26, verse 19. Now, the second way that God is glorified is through territorial increase. The borders of the land are extended to cover all of the promised land. And so for the first time in history, Israel will possess all of the promised land. Now, here are the boundaries of modern Israel. And here are the boundaries of the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, this is my personal understanding of these borders. How I arrived at this conclusion is the subject of another sermon. (laughs) However, there will be a definite need for this expansion. When we get to Isaiah chapter 49, verse 20, we'll discover the need. The children of whom you were bereaved will yet say to your ears, the place is too cramped for me. Make room for me that I may live here. So in Isaiah 49, 20, the population of Jerusalem is complaining that the city is too small for the inhabitants. And that'll be true of the rest of the land as well. Now, the fact that the nation will be greatly enlarged is mentioned by Ezekiel and also by Hosea. Ezekiel 37, 26, for example, I will make a covenant of peace with them and it will be an everlasting covenant with them. By the way, that's the new covenant. Again, that's linking back to Romans eleven twenty five, And I will place them in the land, and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. And then um, Hosea 1.10. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Our song, our song now turns to the subject of Israel's travail in verses 16 through 18. First, her suffering during the tribulation is remembered. And in the tribulation period, Israel will repent of her unbelief. Verse 16. O Lord, they sought you in distress. They could only whisper a prayer. Your chastening was upon them. So the distress and period of chastening refers to the tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble. So Israel will seek God during this time of extreme suffering. It's Israel's prayer at the end of the tribulation that brings on the second coming of the Messiah. Yeshua will not come again until Israel pleads for him to return. That's Matthew twenty-three thirty-nine. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until... You say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Israel has to call on Yeshua to return. And then and only then will the second coming occur. So consequently, in distress, they looked for God. Israel pours out prayer while being chastened. Now, other examples of the pleading of Israel for the return of the, of the Messiah include Isaiah 64, include Psalm 79, But the most striking plea is found in Psalm 80, verse 17. There Israel pleads, 
Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man who you made strong for yourself. See, they're specifically calling on Yeshua to return. Why? Yeshua is the son of man sitting at the right hand of God today. So Israel's sin and failures need to be confessed. And in fact, they are in verses 17 and 18. We begin with Israel's failure to reproduce. As a pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she writhes and she cries out in her labor pains, Thus we were before you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed in labor. We gave birth, as it seems, only to wind. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth, nor were the inhabitants of the world born. So Israel has been in birth pangs and birth pangs and birth pangs, but produced nothing tangible all these previous years. Now the rabbis, the rabbis adhere to a theology that the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is not a prophecy about the Messiah. Today they teach that Israel is the suffering servant of the Lord and that Israel will bring salvation to the world. So the rabbis, Isaiah 53 theology that Israel is the suffering servant that brings salvation to the world, is finally abandoned during the tribulation period. Finally, Israel finally understands the truth that Yeshua is the Savior of the world. And now we come to a wonderful revelation concerning the resurrection of the Old Testament believers. I may lose it during this section, you guys. Just bear with me. This is one of the few Old Testament passages that clearly specifies a coming resurrection. Verse 19. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn. And the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. I love this verse. It's the resurrection as we're singing about. All right, let's tear it apart and examine it in detail. Now, the King James Version and the New King James handles the verse the best of the 17 versions I consulted. The first phrase, your dead shall live, is plural. The second phrase, my dead body, is singular. The third phrase returns to the plural, they shall arise. Well, what is going on here? What's happening here is that Isaiah is personalizing the resurrection. He's including himself in the resurrection. See, the resurrection is not some obtuse, pedantic theological theory for Isaiah or for us. He embraces the resurrection personally and emphatically. So consequently, the King James Version adds the explanatory notes in italics together with. And now the thought smooths Uh, flows smoothly in the English, and the grammar retains all its proper attributes. Your dead shall live together with my dead body. They shall arise. Now, we can join Isaiah by personally appropriating the resurrection for ourselves. I want you guys to do that. I want you guys to all repeat this with me. You can see it up on the screen. Can you say it with me? Can you say it loud and enthusiastically? Okay, join me now. Erica, help me out here. All right, join me right now. Your dead shall live together with my dead body. They shall arise. 
So if you trust in Yeshua, you will be resurrected as well. And guess what the faithful remnant will do next? What they'll do next is obey the command, you who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. This is a command to rejoice with a ringing shout of joy, a song of joy. And I think you and I will probably join in and sing and shout as well, won't we? And why? Why will they eagerly obey this command? For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. You know, dew is an important and valued water source in Israel. The farmer rejoices when a heavy layer of invigorating dew covers his crops. And just as a farmer rejoices over the heavy dew, we will rejoice during the resurrection. I think there's two members of the resurrection right there. I love that picture. So the Old Testament saints will be resurrected for entrance into the kingdom. Now this is one method God will use to increase the population of the nation for the entrance into the kingdom after the destruction of the tribulation holocaust. The Old Testament saints will take on flesh and blood again at the resurrection, and we'll get to meet Isaiah and shake his hand and say, you wrote quite a book, buddy. (laughs) Now, the resurrection of the Old Testament saints is only found in two other places, Daniel 12.2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And also, Hosea 13.14, shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Of course I will. O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? And of course, this is the verse that the Apostle Paul, Rabbi Shaul of Tarsus, quotes in 1 Corinthians 15. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? You know, we've lost a number here. We've lost Emily. We've lost Dave. lost Susan. We'll lose others. That's our hope, you guys. It's not over with. It's not over with. Now, these are the only Old Testament passages that pinpoint a resurrection. So the Sadducean and Pharisaic debate that we read about in the New Testament was due to this scarcity of verses. Now, at this point, our time frame changes. The new subject of the song is the preservation of Israel. Israel needs a refuge in order to survive the tribulation holocaust. So we're now going to look at Israel's refuge in the tribulation. The song continues with a call for Israel to go into hiding. Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. Now, this section is a flashback to the tribulation period. We're looking at the kingdom in verses 1 through 19. Now we jump back and take a quick look at the tribulation for a couple of verses. Israel is told to hide until the indignation is passed. The indignation is the tribulation holocaust perpetrated by the Antichrist. God commands the faithful remnant to hide in order to protect them from the Antichrist. Now, additional passages that expand on this subject would be Matthew 24, verses 15 and 16. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, this is the middle of the tribulation, let the reader understand 
then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Revelation 12.6. When the woman, that's Israel, the woman, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she what? She had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days, three and a half years. So Israel must flee to a mountainous wilderness refuge in the middle of the tribulation. Micah 2.12 pinpoints that hiding place, pinpoints that refuge. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, better translated, sheep in Basra. Like a flock in the midst of its pasture, it will be noisy with men. Now, the ancient name of the city is Basra, located in the Mount Seir mountain range in southern Jordan. The modern name is Petra. All right, how does all this information fit together? As I've done before, I'm going to share with you the sequence of events as I understand them. This is the sequence of the campaign of Armageddon. You can understand it differently, but that's fine with me. All right, step number one. The Antichrist armies assemble at Armageddon. That's Armageddon, the mountain of Megiddo, overlooking the Jezreel Valley. All the nations of the world send men and materiel to the Jezreel Valley for the Antichrist army. Now, Babylon is the religious, political, and economic capital of the world. This brings us to step two. The Antichrist joins his troops. He leaves his capital to personally command his army in the Jezreel Valley. This sets up stage three, the destruction of Babylon. We understand from Jeremiah 51, 27, and 28 that the kingdoms of Ararat, Mini, and Ashkenaz all join forces together with the kingdom of the Medes and come against Babylon in a surprise attack. And Babylon is finally destroyed in the manner in which the Bible demands that it be destroyed quickly, violently, and forever. This brings us to stage four, the fall of Jerusalem. The Antichrist does not defend his capital city. He has other prey in mind. He sends his armies against Jerusalem. A horrendous battle occurs, but Jerusalem does fall. This brings us to the fifth stage, which is the Tribulation Holocaust. This is the middle of the Tribulation, and we have the Jewish flight to Basra. The surviving Jewish people flee to the wilderness, a mountainous area in the wilderness, Basra or Petra, the refuge. It's located in ancient Edom, modern southern Jordan today. Well, the sixth stage is the armies of the Antichrist then besiege Basra. The Antichrist is not going to let the Jewish people get away, so he besieges besieges Basra. We now come to the seventh stage, the national regeneration of Israel. Finally, we see that the siege is going to succeed, and our only hope is Yeshua. And we begin pleading for him to return. We call out for the Son of Man who's sitting at the right hand of God. Send the Son of Man who's sitting at the right hand of God. And of course, Yeshua hears and responds, and we come to the second coming of Messiah. He, he arises from his place at the right hand of God, and he comes back to save Israel and destroy his enemies. And the initial point of the second coming is Basra. Now that's... Um, that's, the, that's part of the sequence of Armageddon. The full, a full explanation of the full campaign of Armageddon is a different sermon. Now, the song closes by telling us the purposes of the indignation. Verse 21. For behold, God is about to come out from his place. There's the second coming. To punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. 
and the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. So God returns to punish the inhabitants of earth for their sin, and when the earth is sufficiently punished, God will then, will then turn to those hidden away, and he will lead Israel to her national salvation. And, then, and thus the song comes to a close. So let's turn to some thoughts of application as we close. I think you can see that our planet and those on our planet are in for a rocky ride. And today, 99% of the Jewish community is heading for the Tribulation Holocaust. And that's why Romans 1.16 is so important, so important to God. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. 99% of God's chosen people are heading for the horrors of the Tribulation and a godless eternity. That's why God prioritizes evangelism efforts to the Jew first and also to the Greek. However, the aftermath of this horrendous tribulation experience will be the blessings of the Messianic kingdom. Now, the world will be very different during the kingdom. The world system will not be functioning because Satan, the former prince of this world, and his minions will be imprisoned. Satan will be in the abyss. His demons will be imprisoned in the regions of Babylon and Edom. The physical world will undergo extensive geographical and geological changes during the tribulation. The mountains will be brought down and the valleys lifted up, according to Isaiah 40, verses 3 and 4. We also saw that in chapter 25, I believe, resulting in the broad plain of the earth, mentioned in Revelation 20, verse 9. Millennial Mount Zion will be the highest mountain on the planet, according to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, and all nations will go up to Millennial Mount Zion to worship the Lord. Yeshua will be king of kings, ruling the world from Jerusalem. All the Jewish people will live in the land of Israel. I expect to be living somewhere in Millennial Israel. Now, under the authority of Yeshua, resurrected King David will govern us. The church saints, that's the majority of the people in this room, will be governing the rest of the world, again, under the authority of Yeshua. So someone in here might be the mayor of Portland, who knows? (laughs) Now the conditions on earth will be similar to the Garden of Eden, Ezekiel 36-35. There'll be plenty and prosperity abounding for everyone, Amos 9-13. And finally, in accordance with the glories of the kingdom, we'll sing songs of praise about God's salvation, protection, and provision. As in verse 1, God will be our salvation. He will be our strength and our song. Isaiah said that back in chapter 12, verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord my God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. So singing for joy will be our kingdom experience as well. So let's close by singing for joy right now. Let's close by singing Isaiah 12, 2. Now, today, in anticipation of the time, we'll all sing it together in the Messianic Kingdom. So, uh, so music team, would you come forward and we'll sing, Behold, God is my salvation.